Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 2 as we continue our journey through the book of Matthew. Now, it took us three weeks to get through chapter 1, but Lord willing, we are going to make our way uh, through chapter 2 in one Sunday. So uh, that's definitely something you can be praying for this morning that we get through an entire chapter. Uh, but as you make your way to the second chapter of Matthew, and if you don't have a Bible and you want to follow along, there are Bibles in the seat pockets in front of you. Uh, but as we head that direction, let me just remind you that Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. So his audience are what we would maybe uh, look at as church folks, right? These are Jews that believed in God. They also were Jews that were looking for the Messiah, right? This uh, this long-awaited, the Hebrew word is Mashiach, which I just like saying that because it sounds awesome. So the Mashiach is who they were looking for. And I also mentioned last week that while his first name is Jesus, it took me until my 30s to realize his last name is not Christ, that Christ is his title, right? It means anointed one. And so Christ and Mashiach are the same word. And, and the three offices that they would anoint back in Old Testament times were uh, kings and priests and prophets. So this anointing would actually be uh, oil dumped on their heads, signifying the Holy Spirit coming upon them and giving them a power in these offices. But these were three separate and distinct positions that were held and they would only be held by one person, uh, the Messiah. So they would be held by different people individually, but only one man would ever hold all three of these offices of prophet and priest and king, and that would be the Messiah. So as they're looking for this Messiah, what's also key to understand is that he must fulfill the Old Testament prophecies speaking of him, which is why in the Gospel of Matthew, the key word is fulfilled. So as he's trying to lay out this case for Jesus is the Messiah, he also will go back and prove that he fulfilled the prophecies that spoke of him. So as we make our way through Matthew, where I want to start is asking this question, is how do people react to this, this Jesus being Messiah? What is their reaction? And so we're going to start in uh, the second chapter. We'll read these first 12 verses to begin. It's, it's in one of three ways. Uh, they are first wicked. Uh, excuse me, they're a wise, they're a wicked, and then they're a woeful. And so we're going to look at the the wicked, excuse me, the wise, the wicked, and the woeful. There, I got it out. All right, let's begin in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, and we'll go down to verse 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where, where the Christ was to be born. And so they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people. And then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them that, that the time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship also. And when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them until it came and stood where the young child was. Now when they saw the star, they rejoiced and, and with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. 
And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. And so the first group that we're going to come across is the wise, right? These uh, men that are signified as the wise men. And I want to start right off the bat by uh, completely destroying your little nativity scenes, and I'm sorry about this. Uh, but the reality is there were probably not three wise men. They brought three gifts, but most of the time these men would have traveled in an entourage. And this sort of makes sense because just one or two or even three people that are asking crazy questions in a big city like Jerusalem probably would not have gotten them an audience with the king. Right? If you've got one crazy person where you work or in your town, people are like, yeah, that's just a crazy guy. Nobody's listening to him. But you get a hundred of these men gathered together, and now you've got quite the uproar. A little bit of a ruckus begins to happen. And so the second piece is uh, these guys are also referred to as uh, magi. You've probably heard that before, magi. Now, it is a short for the word magic, and they definitely were mysterious, and they had this uh, astrological kind of way about them. Uh, but they were also, uh, this word is short for magistrates. So our word magistrate comes from this as well. So they were very uh, well-dressed, well-manicured, very proper. They looked uh, awesome. They probably didn't ride into town in camels, but instead Arabian horses. And so you can, you can imagine the scene as, as a hundred of these men these magistrates rode into Jerusalem, people probably would have taken notice. Now, they were also known by another name, and that is kingmakers. That in the time of the Persian Empire, it was believed that you could, in fact, not be king of the Persian Empire unless the kingmakers said it to be so. And so when the kingmakers rolled into town, people stood up and took notice. Now, one such king is someone uh, historically that we see in the Old Testament, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, right? So Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, this first great world empire, had himself a whole group of kingmakers that he brought around him. And some of the most famous ones we know are a guy named Daniel. And Daniel had three of his friends, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, who we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These guys were brought into the king so that they could be magistrates, advisors to the king on things of dreams and prophecy and, and astrology and all these, these uh, arts and magics. And so these guys were brought in for this purpose. Now I bring all that up to say that these men, these magistrates, came from the east, most likely the area of Babylon, which tells you that even though they were uh, alive hundreds of years after Daniel, they would have known about Daniel and his prophecies. And so if we were to look at Daniel chapter 7, he talks about the ancient of days this son of God that was going to come down. And so these men were looking for what Daniel had prophesied about. Then if we fast forwarded to Daniel chapter 9, we see that Daniel gives an exact time frame that Messiah would come into the city of Jerusalem, down to the very day, in fact, in Daniel chapter 9. So these guys were aware of what was going on and what was taking place and the significance of this. So here come in the Magi. And also, by the way, to to completely destroy your nativity scene. We're going to see that uh, they did not come and visit baby Jesus. Sorry about that. But if you want your nativity to be accurate at your house, I'd suggest you just take the three wise men, put them in the living room, and keep the manger scene somewhere in the dining room. And then at least they're on the way. You don't have to get rid of your figurines. Maybe add a few more to them. 
But, but this is a more accurate scene of the nativity. So as they come to Jesus, what we see in verse 11 is then they, they come and they bring gifts, right? And these three gifts all have a significance. The first thing they bring to him is gold. Now at this time, if you were to go and visit a king in their day and age, you always brought gold. It was just a, an unspoken rule. You don't come to the king's house with bringing some gold. And, and the best way I can compare this to is, if you come to my house, you need to bring dessert, right? I'll tell you you don't have to bring dessert. I'll say, oh, no, no, we've got it. But, I mean, look at me. I'm a guy that likes me some dessert. And I told my kids last night, there's actually not a dessert that I won't eat. It doesn't matter if it's cookie, cheesecake, pie. I love it all, right? That explains some of my weight problems. But that being said, this is the same case. You're to bring the king gold. Now, the second uh, uh, gift that they bring to him is frankincense. Now, back in the Old Testament, as God is giving Moses directions for how to conduct himself in the tabernacle, he gives him some uh, a, a weird concoction that they are to offer up as incense in the tabernacle. And these are to signify prayers going up to God. And the main ingredient in that is frankincense. And so this concoction that was uh, given off as incense to signify prayers lifted up to God was frankincense. And so we see this second gift, it, it signifies the deity of Jesus, prayers even being offered up to him. Now the third one, this is an odd gift to bring to a little kid's birthday party because myrrh was in fact uh, for embalming. It was to signify death, right? So for kings and for rich people, for them to be embalmed in their, uh, in their tombs, they would use myrrh as a way to do this. And so each one of these three gifts has some amazing significance to them. But then the question that I put up here that I pose for you is, is this what the wise men expected? Did they roll in to Bethlehem and get what they thought they were going to get? I would submit to you, probably not. Mary and Joseph would have lived a very humble lifestyle, right? They were lower class, perhaps lower middle at best, as he was a carpenter trying to make his way. And then they, then they show up and they see a toddler, of all things. Like, this is the Son of God, really? And then I think about my own life, and, and how often does Jesus show up in ways that I do not expect? In ways that I don't expect, right? Like, more often than not, he, he's not the, the thing or in the place that I think he's going to be. And yet what I like about these wise men, what makes them so wise isn't the dress or the horses or the gifts, but it's the fact that they worshiped. They fell down and worshipped, right? They didn't, they didn't just kind of go through the motions and, and hum a little bit. I mean, they, they landed on their face in front of the king of kings. So that's the first group, the wise. Now, secondly, we're going to come across uh, the wicked. And this I'm speaking specifically of King Herod. Now, Herod in this day, uh, this particular Herod is known as Herod the Great. Now, he's not called Herod the Great because of his great stature. In fact, he was a very small man, four feet, four inches is what history tells us. But uh, he was a very great builder. He was a masterful uh, contractor, architect. Some of his projects that he did are uh, Masada. So if you ever get the opportunity to go with us, uh, we're going to, every two years, we're going to take trips to Israel. So starting in 2023, we're going to give you guys the opportunity. We'll give you a heads up in advance, and we'll go over and see some of these sites. But Masada is this area in the Judean desert, this fortress that was carved out of the top of a mountain. It was believed to be impenetrable. 
So it's, it's just amazing. It looks out over the Dead Sea. Uh, secondly, he constructed Caesarea Maritime. He actually uh, went out into the Mediterranean Sea and built uh, this sea harbor. And a part of what he built there was uh, this beautiful Colosseum and this auditorium. So the picture on the screen is when I was there in 2017 and took a picture of the, the auditorium that still stands to this day. It's truly amazing. And then probably his most notable architectural feat is the temple. So he took the temple that was started by the Jews and he actually finished it and completely expanded this Temple Mount area to what we see today. The temple's no longer there, but things like the Western Wall and the grounds are all there. And this is all courtesy of Herod the Great. Now, while he was a great and awesome builder, he was also a complete madman. This guy was insane. Uh, in fact, he got into an argument with his wife and had her killed. And then he felt threatened by three of his sons, and so he had three of them killed. So he was such a bad dude that Caesar Augustus, and you have to remember, this is a Roman Empire. So Caesar Augustus is the man. He rules all the Roman Empire. And he appointed Herod the Great as the king of the Jews. Uh, but even Caesar said of Herod, it's better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. It's safer to be his pig. Why? Because he's in Israel. They don't eat pigs. right? So it's way safer to be that than his son. And so with all that in mind, we see that uh, Herod here is very concerned. In, in fact, in, in verse 2, we see the question from the Magi is, where is the king of the Jews? Right? So where is this man that is called the king of the Jews? But, but let me ask you, what was Herod's title? King of the Jews. Now, can you imagine being at work and someone starts and their title is the exact same as your title? Well, wait a minute. Maybe something is going on here that I don't know about. And so we see the threat that was posed to Herod. And what, and what we uh, read on in this next verse is when Herod heard this, he was very troubled, comma, this piece is key, and all Jerusalem with him, right? This is a guy that when he got in a bad mood and he was ready to do some stuff, everybody was afraid. If Herod's upset, we're all upset. Now, uh, he, he goes on then uh, in verse 16. We'll skip ahead just a little bit. And what we see there is because he was so fearful of Jesus, he had all the boys to and under in Bethlehem and the regions surrounding it killed. This is his reaction to Jesus. Right, so the wise worshipped, and for Herod, he would stop at nothing to stop him. And, and this uh, reminds me of John chapter 3, verse 18. We looked at John 3, 16 and 3, 17 last week, very famous verses. But here's what John writes in, in verse 18 of chapter 3. He who believes in him, speaking of Jesus, is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the same in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. So here's the real reaction in the issue for Herod, is he knew he wasn't a good guy, and he wasn't willing to change. And so what he sought to do was to kill Jesus. It was way easier to deal with him by killing him than to deal with him at all. And, and I, I think of uh, how that might relate to me in certain situations in my life. All right, now the third group, we've looked at the wise, we've looked at the wicked, is we're going to look at the woeful. And these are the scribes and the Pharisees that are spoke about, or the scribes and the priests that are spoke about in verse 4. If I can find my place. 
And so what we see there is they are asked by Herod where the Messiah is to be born. And in verse 5, they immediately respond in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written. And then they go on to quote from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, excuse me. Now, uh, they bring this out almost immediately, and so we know that they have knowledge. But do you realize that knowledge is not the same as wisdom? That wisdom is actually knowledge applied. Right? So they had book knowledge. They, they understood the Word of God, and yet they did not know how to rightly apply it. Why do we know this? Because they also didn't go worship. Right? They didn't go worship. They just, they just gave him over. And, and what I wanted to also point out to you in verse uh, 5 here, I think it is, or verse 4, it says, And he gathered the chief priests and scribes of the people. These were not the chief priests and scribes of God. These were the chief priests and scribes of the people. They were far more concerned about people and what man thought than what God thought, which is a very dangerous situation for us to be in. And, and to me, this is the piece that relates the most to the Christian church, right? We can have all the knowledge. We can know the book inside and out. And yet, if it does not apply to my life in any way, I, I am of all men most pitiable. Right? In fact, uh, Jesus addresses a group just like this in Revelation chapter 3. Uh, they're the Laodiceans. And there in Laodicea, what he says is, uh, you are neither hot and nor cold, you are instead lukewarm. You're right in the middle. And, and his response to that is, this is not pretty, I'm going to vomit you out. I'm going to throw you up because this is how I feel about you. You're, you're, if you are hot, I'd know how to deal with you. If you were cold, I'd know how to deal with you. But since you're right in the middle, you're, you're indignant that you're, 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 you're so much so that I'm just going to throw you up. This is it. And what, what I really wanted to wrap up this little piece with is that these people have religion, but they have no relationship. That we can spend all the time we want learning this word, and we can go through it. But, but at the end of the day, if it's not about the God of the word, we kind of miss the point, right? This is a letter for us. This is written, directed to us so that we can know him. And so here we have these, these three different groups, the, the wise, the wicked, and the woeful. All right, let's continue on then with chapter 2. As we see uh, one man that is, in fact, wise here in verse 13, we see he is also obedient. We get back to Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus. And we'll finish out the chapter, and then we'll come back and, and cover these verses. In verse 13 of chapter 2, Now when they had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he set forth to put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all the districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled that was which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in, 
to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose and took the young child, his mother, and came to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside and to the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called the Nazarene. And so in verses 13 through 15, the first thing we know, and we brought this out last week, that, that for Joseph, he was uh, obedient, right? We see his obedience again appearing. And he was not obedient uh, delayed. He was obedient immediately. What we tell baby Madeline is obey right away, right? This is what Joseph had down. He obeyed right away. And, and then the interesting part is God tells him to go to Egypt. Now we could read that and not think anything of it, except if you're a Jew, and this is a big deal, right? Where were they enslaved at? In Egypt. Where did God over and over again tell them in the Old Testament not to go back to? Don't go back to Egypt, right? Stay out of that place. They will enslave you. And yet here's Joseph being directed to go back to Egypt. And so what I wanted to point out to you is that in our minds, we get it concocted that these places are unsafe, or how could I possibly go to this location or that spot? But the safest place on earth, no matter where you are, is in the will of God. That if you are in the will of God, nothing can touch you, right? And we see this take place for Joseph, that, that he's uh, obedient, he immediately goes, and now he's in the safest place they can possibly be. And again, we see Scripture being fulfilled. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 is where this verse is at. And yet, when you read Hosea 11:1, 1, it doesn't look like it applies to the Messiah at all. It looks like Hosea is actually writing about their uh, journey out of Egypt from when uh, Moses brought them across the Red Sea. And yet, this is what God is using to liken back to his son. And what I wanted to point out is that with Jesus, the meaningless has meaning. This seemingly meaningless flyover verse that no one would have picked up has complete and total meaning with the Lord. And what he said is, is uh, every jot and every tittle. That means every little T that gets crossed, every little I that gets dotted is going to be fulfilled. And we see that take place with verses like this. Uh, next, what I want to point out is that, that Jesus was sent to Egypt. He was sent into the world. Egypt, when we do our studies through the Bible, is always a picture or a type of the world. So Jesus is sent into the world, and he's able to show us how to get out of the world, and it's through obedience, right? Joseph is given a word, and he comes out of Egypt. And so Jesus goes into the world to be related to us, right? We are no doubt in the world, and yet he was not of the world, you understand? The, the best analogy I can come up with is, is that it's like a boat being out at sea. For a ship, it can be in the sea, right? But if the sea is in the boat, that's a big problem, right? The boat is going down. So being in the sea but not of or a part of the sea is a very big uh, difference. And so for us, I think that, that God is constantly calling us out of Egypt. Like this is not a one and done kind of a deal for us. Unfortunately, we got a whole lot of Egypt in all of us. And it is a constant until the day we draw our last breath of us being drawn by the Holy Spirit out of Egypt. 
All right, let's continue on then to these next couple verses. In verses 16 through 20 or 18, we see the sorrow that takes place there in Bethlehem. And so this prophecy is one that's actually out of Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. Uh, and, and what Jeremiah is hearkening back to is from the book of Genesis. I think it's chapter 35 there of Genesis. And he's speaking specifically of Rachel. And Jeremiah is tying it to this uh, Babylonian captivity that they're experiencing, this crying out as they're being taken away due to their uh, disobedience. And, and he, he brings us back to this time uh, of Rachel. And Rachel was the wife of Jacob. And so the, the backstory is sort of like this, that, that Jacob goes to find himself a wife, and he sees a knockout, right? He meets Rachel, and she blows his doors off. This is the woman for him. In fact, I think he even cries. So that's not the most manly move, guys, when you find the woman of your dreams. Crying might not be, but it worked for Joseph, or worked for Jacob, all right? It works for him. So Jacob is so enamored by her that he agrees to give seven years of service to his father-in-law in order to, to take Rachel as his wife. So he agrees, they sign the contract, and, and they have the wedding festivities, they consummate the, the marriage, and then the next morning, uh, he rolls over, and, and it's not Rachel. He gets the older sister, Leah, who's not nearly as pretty as Rachel, and it's like, whoa, hang on a second. So the, the funny part about this story, it's not funny if you're Jacob, but what we know is his name, Yaakov, means heel catcher. He was a deceptive deceiver of a guy, and what happens? He gets deceived by his own father-in-law. And so uh, he has to then agree to work another seven years in order to get the daughter he wanted in the first place, Rachel. And now a little side story. I will tell you, if you've never been in a situation like this, probably most of you haven't, uh, where you married the wrong woman, uh, maybe some of you have, I don't know. Uh, but when Angela and I were engaged to be married, our first apartment here in town was a little uh, duplex over off of McKinley, 1810 McKinley. and uh, before we got married, she would come up here and stay because she was going to Eastern at the time. And uh, I would come up and stay sometimes, and she would have a friend stay with her. So she'd have a friend or a sister or someone sleep in one room, and I'd be in the next. But I would always say goodbye early in the morning. And so one particular morning, I got up to go in and tell her goodbye, lean over, give her a kiss. Hey, I'll talk to you later, only to realize I kissed her sister. <laughs> That's a surprising thing, right? That's not what you expect. It was surprising for everybody in the room. That's when everybody's awake now. So that might have been as close as my sister-in-law and I've ever been. Uh, well, it's probably a good thing when I think about it. So it's a shocking ordeal. But this is the spot for Jacob and his wives. And so, uh, you know, it does, by the way, also give us a little bit of hope for our families. Like this is the family that God chooses to have the Messiah. So praise the Lord. But uh, Rachel struggled to have children, right? So, so Leah was able to have children. Apparently, she was a baby machine. Uh, Rachel struggled, and it was a, a very hard deal for her. And finally, she's able to have her first son, Joseph. And Joseph is the apple of his dad's eye. That loves Joseph. He's his favorite. She is also uh, gets pregnant and, and is pregnant with another son. And as uh, this son is coming into the world and she's giving birth, but this is a sad part of the story. She actually realizes during childbirth she is not going to make it. And so she's, she's laboring, and she knows something's not going right. And, and as the baby is born uh, and she realizes she's coming to the end of her time on this earth, she is in Bethlehem, by the way, uh, she names the boy uh, Ben-Oni, which means the son of my sorrow. 
And then she passes off the scene. That's the last we see of Rachel. So for Jacob, he, he's lamenting the death of his wife, the, the love of his life. But he also doesn't want his son to be saddled with this name, Ben-Oni, his entire life, son of my sorrows. And so he takes the boy and he renames him. The father renames him uh, Ben-Yamin, Benjamin, the son of my right hand. And so I bring all that out to say this is a, a parallel we see to the life of Christ, right? He comes into this world, much travail. And, and he is known in Isaiah 53 as a man of sorrows, right? He's come to save the world, but imagine coming as God to this. He is sorrowful, not for himself, but for us, right? He is known as a man of sorrows. And yet what, what the writer of Hebrews writes in, in Hebrews 1.3 is he is set at the right hand of the Father. The Father renames Jesus the son of my right hand. And so what I wanted to tell you is this is an awful section of Matthew chapter 2, right? Lots of death, and it's very sad. And yet, out of this, we see what God can do with even the worst of stories. He changes this, things around, this thing around, and only God could do this. Only God could take this mixed-up story and make something out of it. And now here, <clears throat> with these last few verses, what we see is... is Joseph now being called uh, back into Israel. And so they spent their time in Egypt, and now God has told him in a dream uh, to go back and take the child and his mother and head back in. And so Joseph's initial intent is to go back to Bethlehem, right? They had, he had himself a new business set up there. He had a life set up in Bethlehem. This is where he was going to go, except he heard that Herod's son Archelaus is ruling over Judea, so he doesn't want to go back there out of fear and instead ends up in Nazareth, in their hometown. Now, why would they have not just gone back to their hometown in the first place, you might ask? And, and, and then we think about it, put ourselves in the shoes of Mary and Joseph, and you realize there was a whole lot of whispering going on in that small town, right? So Mary has this immaculate conception. She and Joseph get married before their betrothal is complete. That's their version of a shotgun wedding. They go off to Bethlehem where nobody knows them. They're anonymous there. People don't, don't know their whole backstory. They're able to live a life, right? And instead, God sends them into their small town, small town USA. Now, I will take a little sidebar to say that, that when I got called into ministry in May of 2016, and God was, uh, he spoke to me in, in a, a miraculous way because any other way, I wouldn't have done it. And so I'm pretty hard-headed. But as he did, and I told him, Lord, I'll go anywhere you want me to go. Anywhere. Well, I really don't want to go back to Charleston. I really, I don't want to go back. And the reason for that is, most people know me. They saw me. They saw how I was. They saw how I acted. I don't want to go back there. Of all places. Not there. Because I could make my story up, right? I could, I could paint the picture however I want it to be painted. But, but these folks are friends and family. And they know that guy and how he acted it's Saturday night at the country club, right? They saw that guy. So I didn't want to go back to that place. Now, what I love about that, though, is God completely changes our hearts, right? When it's time for you to go to a place that he's called you to, he will change it to where you can go no place else. So now that we're here, we're so thankful, right? But it took a while. It only took five years for him to, to, to turn our hearts. But it's amazing how he can do that. Now, the next thing we, we notice here is this was, again, to fulfill prophecy that he would be a Nazarene. 
But I challenge you to find in Scripture one place that says the Messiah shall be a Nazarene. Uh, it's not actually in there, at least at first glance. So I'm going to turn back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. And this is what Isaiah says. And by the way, I cheat each week. I put tabs in here. So if it takes you a minute to find Isaiah 11.1, 1, don't feel bad. Uh, Isaiah 11.1 1 says this, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The rod of the stem of Jesse. Jesse is from the town of Bethlehem. And the rod that comes out of that is none other than the Messiah, the branch with a capital B. The word for branch in Hebrew is Netzer, which is where the town of Nazareth was named. So he shall be a Netzer, a Nazarene. And so we see one spot in Scripture, and I don't want to leave you with just one witness, so I'll give you two witnesses, uh, because notice it says the prophets, plural. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, this is what Zechariah writes. And this one I like even more. Uh, Zechariah uh, 6, 12 says this, And then speak to him saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit on the and rule on his throne, and he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And so, again, he shall be the branch, the netzer, is what he speaks of. Now, what's interesting about this uh, prophecy is it was written to a priest named Joshua. And do you remember what Joshua's name in Hebrew is? Yeshua, translated into Greek, Jesus. So this was written to a man named Jesus, the high priest. He shall be the branch. And so we see the prophecy that's fulfilled, and yet these scriptures are obscure, right? And so I, I wanted to point these out to you because, uh, do you know Jesus loves the obscure? He even, he even puts the Lord in an obscure little town, a little podunk town, and he calls him out of this place. He loves the down and out. He loves the underdog. In fact, God loves it when the odds are stacked against him, right? And the reason for this is it leaves no doubt who's behind it. That if the Messiah could come from a little town like Nazareth of all places. In fact, Nazareth was such a, a dirty little town that when uh, Jesus' disciples found him there along the Sea of Galilee and they went and they told their friend Nathaniel, we found the Christ, the Messiah. He is Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, Nathaniel's response was, Nazareth? What good thing ever came out of Nazareth, right? It'd be like being from Martinsville. Like, Martinsville? Like, what in the world? What thing ever came out of Martinsville? Right? In high school, we called it farting smell. Like, really? Like, out of that place? And yet, this is the place where the Messiah comes from because it leaves no doubt who's behind it. All right. So then, as a wrap-up of chapter 2, as we got some, some things to think about, these are just a few different uh, takeaways. I'll try to do this each week, especially when we go through this much uh, Scripture. Uh, the first question is this. What do I do? What I do with Jesus does not reflect on Jesus. It reflects on me. So what I do with Jesus, how I act towards him, does not reflect on him. You understand? He is still the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is not the president of presidents. He's not elected, right? This is still his position, and yet it reflects on me. And so with these three things, we see the, 
the, the way these people reflect upon him, that the wicked want to kill him. And there have been times and seasons in my life where I wanted him eliminated. I do not want to know or hear. I don't want to be condemned in any way. So it's easier just to eliminate him. And for the wolf, will they ignore him, right? They sit in uh, Bible studies in, in church on Sundays, and they hear, and they read, and they study, and yet there is no application, and there is no fruit. It's woeful. It's sad, really. But then lastly, the wise worship him, right? This is the most important spot to be in because you can know as much about this as you want. And I'm not going to say that this isn't important. It certainly is. But it does not in any way compare to worship, right? This is the, the thing that he commands from us, that he deserves from us, first and foremost. It's worship. Secondly, he can allow me to be put into hostile situations to get me out of Egypt. There are some of you that have been put in some really tight spots in your life, right? And being put in those places, it's very possible. He has at the very least allowed it, and sometimes he has caused it. <laughs> and why? Because he's trying to get you out of Egypt. He's trying to draw you out of the world, out of your place that you're in. And yet we are so resistant to this so many times because in lots of situations, being brought out of Egypt brings me to my last point. It's humiliating, right? Humiliation brings about, though, humility. That for us, ultimately, to have humility, this thing that we are called to, we are called to be humble, it, it often comes at the hands of humiliation. And, and here's the thing. Humiliation completely squashes pride. It destroys pride in my life. And I got to tell you, I hate it. It's hard, right? It hurts. And yet it, it destroys pride. But as we think about how we don't want to be humiliated, we don't want to have pride squashed out of us, uh, think about Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, this is what uh, Paul writes. It's known as the great kenosis is the fancy word. It's the great emptying of Jesus. But what it ultimately, uh, what, what he states there is that he gave up all of his God powers. He emptied himself. That's what kenosis means. It's an emptying of all of his powers in order to become a man, a human. And not only that, but a, but a man born in, in less than stellar conditions in a, in a little cave or a manger. And then to grow up this lower middle class life, being utterly humiliated by the situation. You know the whispers in the small town, right? It, 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 time and time again, he's humiliated, only to then live a life where he is killed in the most humiliating of all fashions beaten, hung on a cross, all this humiliating. And he did not say a stinking word. He didn't one time try to defend himself. And I'm blown away by this. But as, I, as we, we think about this and we get our hearts prepared for communion, uh, let me just tell you that, that in obscurity, in this small town, he grew in humility. And in humility, he grew in wisdom and strength. I'll take you to one last place of Scripture, Luke chapter 2, verse 39. We know very little about the life of Jesus prior to him, uh, you know, being on earth and his ministry uh, here on earth. That 30-year period, we really don't know much about. But what we do know, Luke writes in Luke chapter 2, uh, verse 39, and he writes this. And so when they had performed all the things according to the law and they returned to Galilee, this is a return to their own city of Nazareth, 
But the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So if you're in a place where you're being humiliated, where pride is being squashed out of you, around every corner, here's the good news. You're actually being grown in strength and wisdom every step of the way. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. And Lord, as we uh, you know, get ourselves ready and prepared for, uh, for communion and the spirit that, that is behind this, I just want to thank you so much for willingly being humiliated, for, for showing us the way to humility, that in the most humble of all circumstances you, you were brought into this earth and you lived a humble life and you gave yourself on the cross in all humility. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for showing us how to put down pride that so easily ensnares us. Father, thank you for the breaking of your body that we're going we're gonna to observe here in just a few minutes. And we praise you for this. In Jesus' name.